Hi, I'm Shreen Bhattig, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the marketing playbook for the industry one decision at a time. It feels like there's a new DTC brand flooding your Instagram feed every single day, but the explosion of new brands and its shrinking real estate makes it tougher for everyone to stand out. That's the realization Burrow, a two-year-old digitally native furniture brand, came to. The company, which has $18.3 million in funding, sells luxury furniture online and in stores. It recently opened a new store in Soho and is launching a new location in Chicago. But selling couches online is much, much harder than it looks. On this episode, I talked to Alex Kubo, the head of intelligence at Burrow. Alex and I talk about why selling on Instagram does not work for Burrow as it does for a lot of other DTC brands, how to use data in a way that informs product as well as marketing and more. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Alex. Welcome to Making Marketing. Hey, thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. Okay. Couches and boxes, my favorite topic, because I love to sit on my couch. Um, Let's start with the origin story, because you haven't been around very long. You launched Mm -hmm. in 2017, um, and you were not sort of day one, but almost day one um, employee at the company. Talk Mm -hmm. to me about sort of the story of the company to begin with, and where it all kind of began. Yeah. Um, So like you mentioned, I haven't been with the company since the very beginning, but essentially was employee number one. Um, I went to graduate school at the Wharton School in Philadelphia with Stephen and Kabir, who started the company. Uh, They co-founded the company and incorporated it in April 2016, and then um, quickly got admitted to Y Combinator. So flew out to the West Coast, uh, found a contract manufacturer, and started designing the furniture. Mm -hmm. Um, And as they were coming out of Y Combinator, they realized they needed someone to help build out the demand side of the business. Uh, Steven's super focused on strategy, finance, fundraising, um, the greater vision for the company. Kabir super focused on the product, the website, supply chain. Um, they didn't really have a resource to focus on demand. Hmm. Um, I certainly didn't have a background in it. Um, I spent five years in oil and gas before going back to business school. Um, but who needs a background in marketing <laughs> these days to be successful? So uh, I joined well, them. Or at least start with a clean slate. Yeah, way. for sure, right? Um, cold eyes. Uh, So I joined them in the fall of uh, 2016. Uh, At the start of our second year, we launched the company publicly uh, April 2017, a month before graduating, and then have been just growing since. So I like that idea. Sort of, It's almost like a triumvirate, right? Somebody focuses on products. Somebody Mm -hmm. focuses on, let's call it the money, the investments for making sure that there's a growth and what the company is. And then you come in and demand is an interesting way to put it. What it exactly did that entail? What does demand mean for a company like Legboro, which at the time obviously didn't have a lot of customers, you weren't yep. even publicly yep. sort of existing yet, yeah. um, but there had to be some sort of groundwork being laid. Yeah. What did that groundwork look like? Uh, it looked like everything. <laughs> um, demand, I guess, kind of encapsulates all parts of the marketing funnel. Um, there's, like you mentioned, nobody knew about us, right? So it's introducing people to the idea that we even exist. What is Burrow? Why, why, why did we come about? What is this, the concept behind the product? What is the product? What are the value attributes of the product? And the way you communicate that information is via you know, traditional sources like PR, digital marketing, uh, partnerships, showrooms, uh, business development. And it was essentially me handling all of that at once, uh, which obviously is not the best scenario. And so there's certainly hiccups in the beginning. Um, there's a lot of this 
can-do attitude, which you have to have, but oftentimes that can also get you into some holes where mm-hmm. you try to do too much. You try to uh, launch on too many channels at once, um, and you lose a little bit of what is that core message that you're trying to convey to a customer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say in the beginning, yeah, it's, it's a mix of kind of everything, um, PR at the top of the funnel, digital marketing through the midsection and the bottom of the funnel, uh, building out a showroom network to try to get people to touch and feel the product. I think one thing that's interesting about our brand and our product is that you can apply the direct-to-consumer model to a lot of different products and verticals, right? Um, furniture is an interesting category. And I think Casper and some of the mattress companies help pave the way to get the consumer more primed for buying a bigger ticket item. And uh, early days, online. I think you almost referred to yourselves as yeah. kind of Casper of couches. And it was kind of that like Warby Parker of, yes. Uber of yeah, sort of honestly, phenomenon. Like it's, it's funny because that's one of the most frustrating things is like <laughs> that is the easiest way to tell a customer what we do. But talk about as a marketer, you have to oh bring up another it's, brand in the middle. <laughs> it, that, that on top of the fact that internally, I know how much more difficult our business is from an operational standpoint. Um, and so it's frustrating to say, hey, we're the Casper of X, right? But, but when you're talking to an investor, yeah. sort of you need that. No, 100%. 100%. Um, but they've even, I, I mean, Casper from that standpoint has made it uh, even more difficult, like even going out and seeking investment just because they've had this amazing trajectory, right? And their their business model has been so, it, I wouldn't call it easy, but, but from the standpoint of manufacturing a mattress versus mat- manufacturing a modular stylish luxury piece of furniture like we do, um, it's a lot easier. And you're only managing, like, for example, one box when you're shipping to somebody and they're all standard sizes and you don't see them once they're covered with sheets. And so you're less, you have less of a uh, visual perception issue. Hmm. Um, so selling it is, is a lot different. Manufacturing it is a lot different. But when you're talking to a customer and you have two seconds to convey what you do, the easiest way is to say we're the Casper of couches. I'd love for you to walk me through kind of your, let's call it your marketing growth demand playbook, Mm -hmm. especially sort of from year one up and up until maybe year two, Mm -hmm. because everything is starting to look very similar to me. There is clearly sort of a playbook and this isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Every brand and every categories have playbooks of how, because these these things are tested. Um, and I'm curious as to how much you kind of followed this like playbook I have in my head, which with most cases and in other categories and very different categories from yours, it's okay. You launch big PR, obviously Instagram is sort of the place you begin. Um, and you see that more in beauty and wellness, certainly. Then you move on and say, okay, we got to go into different channels. Facebook remains kind of the biggest um, driver of growth, especially in early years. But then, as far as I'm concerned, what seems to happen is costs really start going up. And then you start saying, okay, I got to diversify. And also my company's maturing. Mm -hmm. How much of that playbook rings familiar? Um, Walk me through it. Uh, It definitely rings familiar. I think especially having no experience building a direct-to-consumer company uh, beforehand, I think all of us were uh, trying to adapt as many insights that we could from our peer brands and our network. Um, And a lot of it is exactly what you described. I think one of the disadvantages that was an advantage from the standpoint of maturing as a marketing organization was the fact that the product that we're selling is mutually exclusive with something else in your home. You're only in market for it once every maybe three years. So there's this really long purchase journey. 
a lot of the brands that have come up very quickly on Instagram or Facebook are ones that consumers can make a decision about right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they've been able to gather a lot of very valuable marketing insights from a data-driven standpoint just from focusing on Facebook and Instagram. I think where that gets them into a hole is they get so reliant on those channels. And then there's issues like Facebook and all of social media ran into last year. And now that all of that targeting capability, all of the insights into audiences and that kind of thing are being paired back. And these companies are trying to fight against that and mm-hmm. sort of reset their their marketing funnel. Whereas for us, we learned very early that we can't convince somebody to buy a couch from an Instagram app. Did you try? Of course we tried. Yeah. <laughs> We're uh, like, buy this. It was actually... It's, expense. it's more expensive than that yeah, lip gloss. It, it was kind of a, a, a wake-up call right after uh, public launch because we did have a pre-order phase. Uh, after graduating Y Combinator, we changed prices a bunch of times to try to figure out where the demand curve met, um, the price curve, and uh, all kinds of good stuff. Um, and... Uh, at that point, when we were pre- in pre-orders, we were only asking people to put down a $100 deposit. And so that was more of a easier decision for somebody to make. How did that line up with your inventory management? Uh, we time? didn't have any inventory okay. at the time. Yeah. So it was really just kind of taking a pre-order. And then at the same time, we're building up stock, building up inventory, even mm-hmm. at that point, fine-tuning the design. Um, and then eventually fulfilling those orders in January, February of 2017 before launch to at least get a a basis of customers to launch with, some insights, some reviews, that kind of thing. That's funny. I just want to go down that that path for a minute because obviously, yeah, you were doing pre-orders and that makes a lot of sense. You Mm -hmm. want to find the beta testers. You want to find those early loyalists. Was there a concern about sort of, I keep hearing so much about shrinking the production window. I've I've especially seen it recently a lot in shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen brands like Rothy's kind of really focus on saying, we have to, turn again, totally different category, but we have to turn around uh, the from sort of the day the product is kind of designed and even started to be sketched out to the minute it lands in our stores or in uh, on our website mm-hmm. and then gets shipped, we have to start shortening that window because things are just moving much faster. Yeah. Now, take that into couches. Yep. That's a little bit different. Was that, how did you sort of think about sort of the delivery window as then you went from a pre-order phase into... Okay, now this is something that I will go to your site, I will click purchase, and I am expecting it. Yeah. But you also can't hold a ton of inventory. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of our biggest value props was the fact that we fulfill quickly. And so from day one, it was like, we need to have an inventory on hand. The problem was we hit demand inflection points very quickly, and you can't really keep up with that. And so we were stuck in a more of a just-in-time or as orders were taken basis. Um, and then over time started to mature into more of an inventory driven business mm-hmm. um, for furniture that that's extremely difficult because obviously you're talking about a big item right and there's warehousing costs that are involved with that and uh, you have to be very uh, systematic and data driven in terms of inventory management because that's really where you win and lose money in in furniture um, but again huge, huge value prop for us was the fast fulfillment. So we always want to be an inventory driven business. And and that's something we've stuck to since. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So now you tried to get people to buy you on Instagram. You realized, okay, maybe not for mm-hmm. a slightly more expensive couch. That is yep. a little bit more of a consider, considered purchase. Where did you sort of try things next? You, you obviously did Facebook. I, I saw yep. it. Talk to me about kind of different platforms and experimenting in different places. Yeah. I think one of the things that we learned very early on was the fact, uh, that 
again, it's a long purchase journey. There's a lot of little things about our product and our brand that add up to a major sort of holistic value prop for somebody, um, especially people who have already experienced like the West Elm struggle, struggles or the Crate and Barrel, like order today. Hey, by the way, you'll get it in three months kind <laughs> of thing. You know, it's that's that that that's an awful experience. Um, and so when you're on social media, the mentality of the consumer is more of like in a browsing state of mind, right? They're not interested to stop and learn as much unless you really grab their attention, but you only have a half a second to grab their attention, right? So you can't convey all of these different little value props. You have to figure out which are the right ones to lead with. And so we were able to do that from like a prospecting standpoint and drive the initial traffic. But in terms of actually walking somebody down the funnel, we had to start branching out into additional channels. And that's when we start looking for ones that tell a story. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, like podcasts. Podcasts. We're available. Yeah. Take inventory. <laughs> Perfect. Podcast is an interesting channel because it's one that's not, the, the reads are not disruptive. They're an integral part of the spot, right? Especially mid-roll. Um, and it's a host that the audience is willing to listen to, right? They're listening to the podcast in the first place. And so it's an opportunity for us to communicate directly to the consumer in the voice that they're used to hearing, in the mentality that they're used to being in. Um, and so what that enables us to do is to have their attention longer. So we can hit two, three, four, five value props and attributes, and we can do it in a very personalized way. Mm-hmm. We can have the, to- the host uh, speak about his or her own experience with the product. Um, and those sort of personal anecdotes are what we've found to be the most successful. It's less successful when we prescribe the host with the list of things to cover. Mm-hmm. It's more about, hey, here's a bunch of things that really resonate with our customers. Um, here's the product. Check it out. Try it out for yourself. I'm still trying to understand why, and I, I, I know there's a reason, but why in your category that, let's call it storytelling, because mm-hmm. that's what it is, becomes sort of far more important. because. It's not like other, you know, new brands, digitally native brands don't tell stories on Mm -hmm. Instagram and so on. Is it simply because the price point is higher? It's definitely a price point issue. Um, I think it's also the fact that what I was talking about earlier with the product being mutually exclusive with something else in your home. If you already have a couch, you're not just going to on a whim say, I'm going to buy another couch because you have to get rid of your first couch in the first place, which we've all seen ridiculous videos on YouTube of people trying to do that. So... In, in terms of like what we have to talk people through uh, and do it in a very like brand centric way, which we're able to do through what you're calling storytelling, um, we have a lot more to talk about and there's a lot more selling to do to convince somebody that you're the right product for them, especially in our category, given that we were a digital first brand for the longest time. Um, people are surrounded, especially in our core demographic in like major metropolitan areas by a, a West Elm store on the corner, a Crate and Barrel store on the corner. And they can go and they can experience all these different products in person, right? Granted, they're going to have to deal with sales associates and they're going to have to try to figure out what couch is the right one for them by sitting down for 30 seconds, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that we've tried to change the experience for in our, our store down in Soho. And we can talk about that some more. Um, But storytelling enables us to walk them through that sort of visceral experience um, in a way that we just don't have the same capability of doing because we don't have all of these stores all over the country. That makes sense. But before you launched, um, and I want to talk about the stores, uh, the store in Soho first, but before you even launched that, you were sort of in a bunch of places, right? Mm -hmm. You sort of, there were places where you could sit on a sofa um, and 
I believe one of them was a brewery, which I thought that was really interesting. Because you, again, then we come back to the age old, well, can you really sell perfume online mm-hmm. issue? Like people can't smell it. I think, I think in some ways the narrative, that narrative, we're a little bit past that. Like it's clear that you can sell perfume online. It's clear that you can sell furniture online. Yep. Um, like, and it, you don't even have to be like an upstart brand to do it. Like Wayfair's doing yep. it, right? But you, people still want to touch it. You still, and that works as marketing for you. So talk to me about your physical retail strategy sort of starting out and especially how kind of data fueled what that actually looked like. Yeah. We have a sort of AI machine learning partner that's ingesting all of our uh, transactional data. I love the word AI. <laughs> I actually hate the word AI. Well, because I, I'm always like, is it really AI? Right, exactly, exactly. That's why I have such an issue with it. <laughs> um, they're uh, ingesting all of our transactional data, all of our marketing data, and they're fleshing that out with all of their third-party data sources and then coming back to us with uh customer segments, customer profiles, that kind of thing. Um, Then what we're doing is then turning that model upside down and saying, here's our customer segments, here's the clusters, let's extrapolate that model to the rest of the broader U.S. population and find the the kind of centroids of those populations of people. Give me an example. So uh, if we find a certain demographic that's, you know, there's kind of the obvious things like 25 to 35, mid to upper income, young professional, that kind of thing. But then they're able to also extrapolate other insights such as like pet ownership or credit score or um, do they have a fireplace in their home is another interesting one. Um, and then what we're able to do is to take that model and look at, again, the broader U.S. population and find these hubs of those segments of customers. Then we can look for, obviously, partners in, in uh, locations in, in that area mm-hmm. to partner with. What um, was a hub that, I don't know, would be surprising or interesting? Surprising for me, I, I think, was uh, the Pacific Northwest. Um, Portland, uh, certain pockets and neighborhoods in Portland uh, are great. Um, and then Seattle as well. Um, really, really great city. I think obviously they have the inf- influence of Amazon. And so I think everybody is uh, willing to you know, focus on that. They like to buy things online. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think they're, they're kind of used to that. But um, uh, uh, one of the, the more interesting things is, is we can find the pockets of people in terms of where they're living, but it doesn't necessarily correlate to where they're spending the majority of their time. Or if they were going to go check out a product, are they just going to walk out their front door? Probably not. They're probably going to go and uh, uh, join that with another shopping experience, whether it's going to get their groceries or something else like that. Um, and so what we have to do is then take those insights and those like identified pockets and neighborhoods of people and then also evaluate that in the context of what's, what else is going on in that neighborhood or locally or nearby. Um, so in terms of uh, buying or, or renting out the store in Soho, uh, not a ton of our customers live there, but that is where they've told us they're spending a lot of their time. Mm-hmm. And if somebody is going to browse uh, furniture, they're probably in the mindset of browsing a lot of things. And so if we can co-locate with a lot of those other peer brands, you can take advantage of things like branding by association. You can take advantage of all the street traffic, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but as we're looking to expand our retail footprint, Um, we've kind of collected a lot of those insights and identified those neighborhoods. But then what we're actually doing is just going and collecting first-party data. We're surveying all of those people and saying, where are you spending most of your time during the week? Where are Mm -hmm. you spending most of your time on the weekend? Um, What are you doing in these areas? How are you spending your time? 
And then aggregating all of that information back together with transactional data, like where are our highest AOV coming from? Where are the people that are purchasing both uh, multiple categories of products mm-hmm. from us? And then sort of coming up with a weighting or indexing system to try to figure out where the best uh, neighborhood actually is. And then obviously you have to take this in the context of what real estate is actually available and makes right. sense for you. Um, but we're going to open our new Chicago location in a week and a half, two weeks, um, which we're really, really excited about. Super, super data-driven um, expansion for us uh, and, and, and should be a really, really good opportunity. We'll be back after this quick break. With the mission of making the web a first-class platform that delivers results, Pantheon is building the world's best web ops platform, one that gives superpowers to web teams, allowing them to take control of their websites and work in an agile fashion to win in the dynamic digital world. With Pantheon, marketers and developers deliver results by iterating quickly, learning and experimenting with their websites in the same way that they do with virtually every other tool in their MarTech and development stacks. Pantheon powers over 285,000 sites, and is trusted by thousands of marketing and development teams around the world. Learn why at pantheon.io slash making marketing. Now back to the episode. So when it comes to that data, it's obviously changing how you market and you're changing things and targeting things accordingly. Um, It's changing the product itself. How does Give me an example of how it changes kind of product availability, especially in, in these two stores now, because let's talk about Soho specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, you opened Soho last August. September okay. 8th, September. I believe. September 8th I remember year. that only because it was four days after my kid was born and we had to move up the induction date <laughs> just to, uh, to accommodate just the store launch. Life. Yeah. I love it. So September 8th, uh, congratulations. <laughs> and also congratulations on the new store. Yeah. So you yeah, opened yeah. the store. Where where did that kind of data data bit come into how that store was laid out, mm-hmm. created, mm-hmm. the inventory it had, and then the data that was coming out of it? Because obviously that's yes. the thing that I think people get really excited about. That now I can get real data on real people. Kind so of from from a location standpoint, I would say it was very data driven in terms of figuring out where our core demographics were spending a they're lot all of their in time. Soho. They're all there. <laughs> they, there's a lot of brands that are there, and they're there for a reason. Soho is like the DTC alley. Yeah, right. It's right. it's a start. We're right next door to Warby Parker, awesome. which is funny because like Stephen's apartment at Wharton was like a couple uh, blocks away from it's Neil's apartment at Wharton. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I would say all the data driven uh, portion of the Soho store was more on location and customer centricity where we had to make a lot of assumptions was on things like store layout and what we want to have users experience in the store. What we had to inform that was our own experiences of dealing with West Elm showrooms, crate and barrel showrooms, restoration hardware showrooms, where you're dealing with a store associate that's asking you mm-hmm. weird questions and you really just want to feel the couch, right? Um, and then, but you feel awkward because you only have 30 seconds to sit there. Um, so how can we offer a different opportunity to people? And so the original concept of the store was more of a, uh, a retail focus up front, so more of a traditional experience. And then as you get further and further into the store, it becomes more and more experiential. And we can allow somebody to experience our product in the kind of environment and the kinds of activities 
that they would be doing at home. Uh, so I think like one of the crowning features of our store is the movie theater all the way in the back where you can literally just go and sit and watch a movie during the winter. We had tell all me you've kicked at least one person out of there uh, after like five hours. I th- we have we're very uh, it's New York. There has to be at least one person who's like, this is what I will take advantage. Yeah, of Yeah, I think it's it's even worse because we offer free wine and beer oh, to yeah, people no, as well just to go oh, and hang I'm out. aware. OK, good. <laughs> Maybe we've kicked you out on occasion. No, it know. wasn't me. I've never <laughs> just saying yeah. I was never paid. Uh, that's great. That's really interesting because, again, I think that goes back to it's not even just something I think that, again, let's call them DTC brands, just make mm-hmm. it simple. But DTC brands going to physical or doing is also something you're seeing established brands do recognize mm-hmm. that people are buying things online, but stores remain important for events. You can have yoga in stores if you're a fitness yeah. brand or something yeah. like that. Let's go back to that data thing again then. So somebody's coming in, maybe they're even just coming in to kind of touch a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's fine because they mm-hmm. might go home and a month later decide to buy something. Yep. Um, how difficult does it remain to connect those dots? Because I think as good as attribution has gotten, there's still so much in there that isn't quite... A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think you have to go into that with more of the the mentality that it is going to be difficult. And you're going to have to take a little bit of a marketing 101 approach and just say, look, this is an asset for people locally. It's a smart asset because people that are buying furniture, when they're doing it online, they want to feel confident and validated in that purchase. It's a big decision. Um, And it's not immediately fulfilled, right? Um, So if they do have a problem with anything, there's a store a mile away that they can go and they can complain and vent about, right? They just want that human-to-human interaction. Um, measuring that, obviously, is is still very difficult. And so we have a number of direct ways to measure. Obviously, direct revenue, right? That's the, the easiest one. Um, in addition to that, we do things in store like uh, save your design. If you're speaking with a store associate and you ha- see something that you like, they can email it right to you. No different than what Bonobos does or mm-hmm. Warby does. Um, and then... The other things we do are events that we're putting on. We do RSVPs for those events. So we have people's emails, which we can back attribute to purchases a month, two months, three months in advance. Yeah, exactly. But events are more, they're they're very, very top funnel for the most part. Certain ones are a little bit more mid funnel, but uh, those people may not even be in market a year from now. And that's something that we have to accept. Um, It's something that we need to generally start the conversation about the store and get people in the door um, to introduce them to our brand. We know and we recognize that not everybody is in market at all times, but we do want to be top of mind for them when they are in market. That's so interesting because I think so much of this world is, uh, again, going back to DC brands, so much of it is testing marketing Mm -hmm. and therefore it becomes a huge cost. Is marketing kind of... One of you'd say sort of obviously a big priority, but also a big cost for you as a company because you're testing so much and you don't really know. Huge. I mean, everything that we do, all the tests that we run, we certainly set them up uh, with a good structure for measurement. Um, There are ones that are going to be more difficult and we have to accept that the ones that are not as difficult, traditional digital marketing, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that we are slicing and dicing the data in every which way, that we're looking for insights constantly, that we're iterating on those learnings constantly, and then apply those insights to some of the channels that are more difficult to measure, but are really important from a brand perspective, and also from broadening your demographic perspective, right? Like, we're not going to hit all of our customers just by focusing on Facebook or Google or Instagram or any one of these digital mediums, we need to expand into things like direct mail, into Mm -hmm. things like Subway, 
podcast, radio, more broadcast opportunities. Those are big investments. And they're also very hard to change at the last minute. Whereas we, I can go and flip a switch and stop running an ad on Facebook. I can't stop a direct mailer that's already in transit from getting to somebody. Mm -hmm. And so when we do invest in those opportunities, we're leveraging all the insights and the data from the more digital channels and also previous learnings from that channel if we had run it in the past. And then coupling all that stuff together and then informing how we go to market in, in those different channels. Is Facebook still working though, even though it's expensive? Facebook is still working. Our mentality in terms of how we're using it has evolved over time. So we have traditionally just looked at it as sort of our full funnel marketing approach. Um, now we're using it in a very sort of segmented way hmm. of reaching unique audiences uh, with the right messages to draw them in and introduce ourselves and our product and our brand. And then using it more importantly as a conversion engine. So retargeting, we have a, a much better way of reaching people that are interested in our brand and identifying those people based on their digital signature on the website mm -hmm. um, and being able to reach them with a very targeted message. Uh, so it's still very effective from that standpoint. As you mentioned earlier, it is getting more expensive. Um, there's more competition. The ability to target is getting a little bit drawn back because of some of the privacy concerns, um, which you know obviously makes sense. Um, and so as a channel as a whole, it's becoming more challenging. I would say the value is still there, but it has to be coupled with other channels to really round out the message. And that is obviously a function of Facebook changing, but also a function of your evolution, because mm -hmm. you're not just going to, you know, and there are brands that put, put again, first six months, 100% of their marketing dollars into Facebook and they yeah. find the results, but it's sort of yep. the change has to come. Yep. Um, let's talk a little bit about sort of the direct to consumer industry as a mm -hmm. whole. Um, we sort of touched on this earlier, but obviously tons of competition in your space, but also in just similar brands because I think there's sort of a fight for attention so yeah. that means that you're not even just competing against article or whatever you're also competing just against other brands who are the same real estate everyone's sort of looking the same yep. subway ads they're everywhere mm -hmm. um how does that kind of work when you're talking to customers but also you know investors you're sort mm -hmm. of looking for a differentiating point and I think there's been a lot of talk now and is this is this DTC bubble going to burst and are there going to be some winners that inevitably rise up mm -hmm. does that concern you as a company or in, and how do you sort of see yourself kind of playing a part in that uh, I think I, I'm I'm definitely also on on, on on the mindset of like this we're in a little bit of a bubble right now it is going to burst I think that that's largely driven by the fact that it's so much easier to start a company and launch a brand and and launch products than it used to be you don't have to deal with these long like month long contracts with manufacturers you go to Alibaba and you can find someone to, to make your stuff mm -hmm. pretty and you quickly go to Shopify right? and they'll do the rest. go to Shopify right exactly there's like uh, creative generation tools out there as well that can give you sort of the groundwork for a brand. Now, if I ever told my creative team that we were going to go <laughs> do something like that, they'd throw a fit, uh, and rightfully so. Um, you do all of most of your everything in house. We do the vast majority of vast things majority. in house, um, especially now. Uh, we did leverage a branding agency uh, a lot more in the beginning, um, and now we've built out a very, very talented, multifaceted creative team internally um, that does a lot of our stuff. When you say sort of bubble, I'm curious about, and again, stepping out of even the borough box for yeah. a minute, but where does the kind of that where will that sort of softness first be felt will it be with customers just being I don't know customer fatigue let's call it um, will it be with sort of let's call them again legacy brands coming mm. in and realizing that 
they've kind of messed up Mm -hmm. in the last few years. Customers are disappointed. That experience, frankly, sucks. And they start getting better, which is good, good Mm -hmm. for the industry. Or is it kind of in the investment? Because also a ton of money was poured into tons of brands. And some Mm of them, it's just, it's interesting to see some of them didn't even exist. So much of this didn't come back. It's not creating returns. Um, And I keep hearing the VCs are putting understandably more and more pressure on their portfolio companies and yep. saying you got to you got to sh- turn things around yep. or you got to turn a profit quicker you got to grow quicker yeah. 3x 4x yep. something that just would not have existed 5 years ago nobody was right. asking for 3x growth in yeah. you know the first 6 months or anything like that where do you sort of see I'm asking you to put your speculation hat on but where <laughs> do you sort of see this first coming to hit us I think the majority of the fallout is going to be at the bottom I think there's a lot of uh new uh, green companies that are coming out. Um, I I get hit with a different uh, an Instagram ad for a different t-shirt company every single day. I always um, want to go back and see how much of them how many of them even exist. I know, right? It's <laughs> it's actually it's pretty crazy. Um, and I think it's not only going to apply to the direct consumer brands, but also even the marketing technology companies, the service industry. That's that I mean, if you look at the Martech landscape over the last 10 years, it has absolutely blown up. Um, and that's because data has become more democratized in general, the ability to access, to process that data and build these engines. And, you know, I, I swear there's 10 emails in my inbox every day from a different marketing technology company that does mm-hmm. the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, and well, I think it was also back in the day, like Facebook and Google weren't doing a lot of that. And it happened with ad tech and mm-hmm. martech both that the industry understandably had to consolidate yeah. and we're seeing it in the softness there too. Yeah, 100%. I think a lot of those bottom feeders are going to going to start f- falling out. Um, I think there will be pressure from the top down in terms of incumbents sort of embracing this new consumer, you know, mentality and trying to address it. There are certain brands I think that are um, able to do that. There's certain brands that kind of have this their their brand is a little bit more anchored. And it's going to be more difficult for them to transition and, and, and really speak to the new consumer, mm-hmm. the modern consumer, in a, um, a really uh, compelling way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so change I, is hard, especially for those companies. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I worked at a massive corporation. <laughs> God, if I ever told them to change the way they're doing everything. Uh, um, <laughs> Write me seven memos, Alex. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, so I think there is going to be pressure from the top. Um, and they certainly have the capital behind them. Um, they don't have, you know, a lot of these are public companies and so they are, uh, they do have pressures, pressure from investors. I think the pressure to grow as quickly is not there. I think what you brought up is a good point, which is that, you know, the pressure from VCs in general to, to grow these insane multipliers, mm-hmm. um, year over year, quarter over quarter, month over month, um, which is a lot easier I would say to do in the very beginning and then as you start to mature as a brand and an organization and a product and as competitors start arising it gets obviously more and more difficult um, but they hold you to that same standard and so that's when like from a marketing standpoint it's super difficult because you want to continue building this brand but that takes a lot of time and investment and effort um, doing brand campaigns and stuff like that right uh, meanwhile you also need to be selling every single day. Like mm-hmm. if you're missing your numbers, that is a big problem. And consumers, especially on uh, some of these social mediums, they uh, they respond more to this direct response messaging. 
here's a value prop, click this, buy this kind of thing, right? From a brand perspective, that kind of sucks. It's, it's you know, you're never going to get that loyalty from your customers. Mm-hmm. We've tried to uh, build both of those up uh, at the same time. Certainly very, very challenging. We've definitely not perfected it. But it has allowed us to have a much higher repeat purchase rate than we ever expected to have. And we're showing a lot of this great brand loyalty. Number one, because people are impressed with the product. Well, you have a repeat purchase rate, but you've been around for two years. Somebody's buying couches what, every are. year? They are. Every six months? Multiple couches. They're adding on things like armchairs, but it's also helped to drive our product development cycle. So coming out with even merchandise products like our pillows and throws. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is, also, again, another like stretchability thing. You could you start with yes, one thing. Casper 100%. started with that. Now it, they're doing night lamps. And that, that was the original theory behind our brand was can we prove an economically viable and sustainable and scalable model with the most difficult component of the home from an operational standpoint? And if you can, if you can anchor yourself at that point and and build a brand around that, then you can sort of just expand into other products Mm -hmm. uh, from there. I think there are certain companies that are uh, going down a path of one sort of singular product category that doesn't make make as much sense to expand out from there. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, it was the couch is sort of the centerpiece of your home, especially for the modern consumer, the young demographic. We're moving every single year. We're eating, sleeping, <laughs> drinking, working, anything on our couch, right? Um, and so we needed to craft a product that addressed the modern consumer, how people live their modern lives. Mm-hmm. Um, they're living in those fourth story walk-ups. They're doing all <laughs> these things on their couch. Like, how can we make that product for somebody and really anchor them to that product and that brand and that experience all together and then sort of cement ourselves in their mindset for when they need new things? Because there is this paralysis of choice today. There are so many options out there, especially even if you go on like, uh, you mentioned Wayfair earlier. I I think I get agita (laughs) whenever I go on Wayfair and that's not even from the standpoint of like, I work at a furniture company, but it's, there are so many SKUs. I don't even know where to start. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's the same thing with brands. You, you can go and you can Google like couch online and you'll get tens of thousands of, you know, uh, options available to you. Yeah. Where well, I you hope start? your search targeting is working. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it's up there. <laughs> search is definitely uh, <laughs> a, a, a great channel for us. Um, last question. You you mentioned that obviously data drives a lot of your product mm-hmm. kind of development, yep. um, which makes a lot of sense. What is one sort of thing that, I don't know, some corner or some bit of your data is telling you you should get into that, I don't know, would just be surprising for me? So there, we, we do have a product coming out very shortly that I can't talk about um, from the standpoint of exactly what it is. Um, there's is it squishy? <laughs> <laughs> is yeah, it an animal, it, vegetable, it, or I mineral? I would say there's a, there's a squishy okay. element to All right, it. We'll, yeah. talk, all right. Um, we'll leave it there. Yeah, but uh, there are moments to release products for pure unit economics. Things like pillows and throws are great. They're easy add-ons. They're not mutually exclusive with something else in your home. You can add them on any time of the year. You don't have to couple it with other transactions, right? Um, Then there are products that are more brand-driven, ones that are more of a customer anchor. When they experience that product, they have this great memorable experience, and it's such an investment for them that they um, think about that product all the time. And then there's this like weird spot of products, like what Casper did with the dog bed. Um, where it's not really like 
the the logical next step and it's 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 more of a brand play hmm. um, we have a roadmap that's sort of informed by both of those directions um, as ways to build the brand but also help support our unit economics mm-hmm. and, and customer economics over time um, I guess some of the more more of the data driven side we've been using a lot of our transactional data to do an exercise called zoning um, which is figuring out what people are buying together and trying to map their living rooms essentially that helps us figure out like where are the biggest gaps and holes that we can fill with a, a piece of furniture right like most people that think you know, what would Burrow come out with next? Probably like a coffee table, right? Because it's right in front of the couch (laughs) or maybe another kind of chair or something like that. Um, But for us, there's the logical next step and then there's what is the data and what is our customer telling us? Um, And without even having to go and talk to them, we have all the transactional data right now. We know what they're buying together. We know when they're buying it, right? And we can make certain assumptions about is this does it does this sound like this person is buying all this stuff together to go into one room are they filling out a second room or maybe a rental property or something else like that and then we can sort of map their living room or their home essentially and figure out what is then the logical next step for that particular customer Mm -hmm. marry that up with all of our customer segments customer clusters and then figure out okay these are the people that we're speaking to this is the hole in their home mm-hmm. that we need to fill. Let's design a product that fits that and also speaks directly to that customer segment. Got it. So I'm assuming dog sofa. Going with it. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for today's episode of Making Marketing, a show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like the show, here's what you need to do. Head to your iTunes store, search for a show Making Marketing, leave us a review and a five-star rating. It helps new listeners find us. I'll also read my favorite reviews here at the end of the show. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.